We are in the Gospel of John, and uh, just before we get into the text, John chapter 2 today, I just want to talk about a few questions that we often ask when we come into a, a church like Willingdon. If we've been here for a while or just here for the first time, we have questions like, okay, will I find friends here in this family? Will I find answers to the questions I'm asking, my real questions? Will this community walk with me through some of the life challenges that I'm, I'm facing? Will I meet people who will help me discover who Jesus is, go, go deeper in my faith in God, equip me to serve Jesus? All really good questions. Our, our desire is to walk with you as a church family, to find answers to your questions, to help you come to a deeper understanding of who Jesus is, learn to love people the way Jesus did. And that's why we're introducing something called the Discipleship Pathway. It's a simple uh, four-phase grid, four phases, explorer, uh, hiker, climber, and guide. We're using hiking language to talk about this pathway. And it'll help you discern where you are in your journey and what the next steps might look like. We have this wonderful backdrop today. You can see the first symbol there, the first watermark. It's a telescope. That represents the explorer phase. And if you're explorer, an explorer, you're wondering who Jesus is, why people worship him, why do people raise their hands. You're checking out you know, the Christian faith. You're not sure whether you want to commit to following Jesus or not. If that's you... There's a, a wonderful course called Alpha starting next week. You can go to back to the Welcome Center and sign up or sign up for Discovering Jesus. These are opportunities for you to grow in your understanding of who Jesus is. The second watermark is the hiking boot. And if you're a hiker, you've made a decision to follow Jesus, but you don't know what that all involves. You're learning how to study your Bible, how to pray. You're learning how grace transforms your life. You may, be, may have joined a, a small group, a life group. Then the third phase is the climber phase. You see the, uh, the pickaxe and the rope. Uh, things are a bit more challenging. And so you're conquering challenges as you walk with Jesus. You're expressing your faith by serving God through the gifts that God has given you. You're prioritizing your time with God. And increasingly, you're learning to follow God in every area of your life. You're a climber. And then the fourth watermark is the compass, guide. If you're a guide, you are intentionally guiding others in their journey with Jesus. You've moved from being an explorer to a hiker to a climber, and you're now guiding others. You want others to become disciples of Jesus that make disciples. So it's a simple four-phase grid. It helps us discover where we are in our journey. It helps us move along, and we'll be providing more resources in the coming weeks. Go back and pick up a brochure. There should be brochures for everyone in the lobby. Last week, we were in John chapter 1. And some disciples of John the Baptist started to follow Jesus. Jesus noticed that they were following, and he turned around and asked the question, a profound question, what are you seeking? What do you really want? And they said, well, where are you staying? And Jesus said, come, and you will see. That's the invitation of Jesus. Come, get to know me. Come, have your questions answered. Ask your questions. Come discover who I am. Come discover who you are. 
If we're following Jesus, we'll discover that every moment with Jesus can be filled with meaning. Today, we're going to be looking at a wedding. Even at a wedding, Jesus can reveal himself. Weddings are interesting moments, right? Um, Usually, when a couple is getting married, that wedding moment is the most important moment in their lives up to that point. And so the bride and the groom, they spend a lot of time preparing for the wedding ceremony. Both families will engage in the preparation. They want that wedding ceremony to be as perfect as possible. Unfortunately, strange things happen at weddings. For example, someone will forget the rings. Uh, The bride will come late. Uh, Someone in the wedding party will faint. Things go wrong. Judy and I, we got married in southern Brazil. And like any young couple, we wanted to have the perfect wedding. We were going to get married in the sanctuary. And then in the, uh, in the area below, the lower, on the lower floor, we were going to have what's known as a chuhasco, a, pr- a traditional Brazilian feast. Just think of as much meat as you could ever eat in your life. So that was what we wanted for our guests. We were preparing for the wedding ceremony in the sanctuary. The grill master was back downstairs at the barbecue. He lit it up. He started to grill the meat. And he didn't uh, set the flue of the chimney to the right setting. And so the smoke billed up into the sanctuary. It filled the sanctuary. So it's time for the wedding to start. I'm on the platform. And I'm looking toward the lobby of the church, people are coming in, and I actually can't recognize who is coming in. There's so much smoke. Felt like a rock concert. Eventually, we opened the windows, the smoke cleared, we got married, the food was awesome, but things don't always go according to plan. And that's what happens in John chapter 2 as well. Let's open up in our Bibles. John chapter 2, we find Jesus and the disciples and his mother at a wedding. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. She also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to his servants, to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you've kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. So what is this passage teaching us? Does it mean that if you are a follower of Jesus, then no need to plan for the wedding? 
Just show up. Jesus will provide all that you need, even the best of wines. No, probably not. You know, in order to interpret a passage well, we need to understand the context. What are the circumstances surrounding the event or the teaching? What is the timing, the geography, uh, the setting in the text, the larger story? So, for example, had you appeared at our wedding in southern Brazil, you may have looked over at my wife, Judy, my wife-to-be, and you may have seen her crying, and you may have thought, wow, I wonder if she's second-guessing her marriage to Ray. That's a bad thought. Why would you think that? Or you may have seen the smoke in the sanctuary and said, why did Ray and Judy want the atmosphere of a rock concert? See, you need to have the context to understand what's going on. So again, here, reading this text, we need some context. Let's take out our telescopes and zoom in to verse 1, Cana. It's a small village in Galilee. It is on a Roman road between Ptolemais on the Mediterranean coast and Magdala on the Sea of Galilee, kind of halfway in between, about 13 kilometers north of Nazareth. Jesus and his mother are from Nazareth. So they're probably at the wedding of a friend or a relative. Zooming out a bit more. Okay, what would have happened at a Jewish wedding up to this point? Or better said, a Jewish marriage. The groom, before this this feast, he would have traveled to the home of his bride, his bride-to-be. And he would have made a proposal. He would have paid a dowry price. And while making the proposal, he would have poured a cup of wine. And if the bride-to-be would have drunk from that cup. She would have been communicating to him acceptance. Okay, I want to marry you. It was like a covenant, something much stronger than we have around engagements today. After that proposal ceremony, the groom would return to his father's house and he would begin to prepare the living accommodations uh, for him and his bride-to-be. And this time that would separate the the engagement, the the betrothal, and the wedding celebration, it could last up to 12 months. So you can imagine the anticipation. The bride is waiting in her home. She doesn't know when the groom is going to come. She doesn't know when the day is going to be. She waits with anticipation. She's dreaming about her wedding day. The pinnacle of the Jewish wedding celebration, of course, was the marriage banquet. And it wasn't just a sit-down dinner for a few guests. It was a week-long celebration. Food, wine, music, dance. It was a community celebration. Often the whole village would be invited. The guests, they brought gifts. And it was expected that the host of the family, or the host family, the, the family of the groom, would provide all the food and wine needed. So, if they ran out of wine in the middle of the week... That would be a matter of social humiliation. There would be a shame that would linger over the family for a time. Nicknames come out of this kind of thing. The groom may have been known as, you know, hey, there's no wine Jake. We know what happened at his wedding. Ran out of wine. Now let's zoom out a bit more. What's happening in the verses surrounding our passage? So John says that it's on the third day. That's two days after the meeting with Nathaniel. 
If you read through chapters 1 and 2, you, you see that John very carefully narrates the sequence of seven days. On the first day, some religious leaders are sent to ask John the Baptist, who are you? And John the Baptist answers, hey, I am not the Messiah. I'm just a voice preparing the way for the Lord. That's the first day. Now the seventh day is at this wedding celebration, and the disciples are going to get a glimpse of Jesus' glory, and the sign, what they see, will confirm for them that Jesus is the Messiah. Zooming out a bit more, if you look at chapters 1 through 12, these chapters that we're studying over the next weeks, uh, they're built on a series of seven signs, seven miracles. And this sign that we have in John chapter 2 is the first one. So knowing the context, you see that there's much more happening here than a wedding. During the, the pinnacle of the Jewish wedding celebration, the host family runs out of wine. And for some reason, Mary feels somewhat responsible. Why? Well, again, probably because she was a relative or a very close friend. Maybe she was involved in the wedding preparations. It seems that she's the first to find out. So she goes over to Jesus and she says, they have no wine. And the word is wine, not grape juice. If anyone is asking, wine was a standard part of, of life in the ancient Mediterranean world, and they would not be able to make wine in five minutes. They would not be able to find it in a store nearby. Did she expect Jesus to do a miracle here? We don't know. The text says it was his first miracle. Mary was probably a widow at this point. We don't hear about Joseph, you know, from this point forward in Jesus' life. Probably a widow. She had probably learned to depend on her oldest son. She knew that Jesus was responsible, that, she would get thing, that he would get things done. So she looks to him. Just a note here. We know very little about Jesus' early childhood, about his early manhood from the scriptures. Sometimes you'll hear stories like this, like in his infancy, he was playing with clay pigeons and he turned them into living birds. Those are fictitious stories that come from the second century and later. It appears from the scriptures that Jesus actually hid his divine identity until the time that we're reading about. In verse 4, Jesus responds to, to Mary, his mother, in an interesting way. Look at what he says. Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. It sounds a bit rude, right? Sounds a bit disrespectful. Woman is probably not the best translation of the word that Jesus used. It's probably too condescending, too distant in English. It's interesting that Jesus uses exactly the same word for his mother when he's on the cross dying, breathing his last breaths, and he looks at her and sees her need. A better translation in English might be something like madam, but it still isn't really what's being said here. The question is, what does this have to do with me? That's an idiomatic expression. It means something like this. Madam, why am I responsible for this dishonor? Why are you involving me? This is the bridegroom's problem. That kind of response was probably difficult for Mary. Mary, she gave birth to Jesus. She nursed him. She raised him. And Jesus, with these words, he's, he's distancing himself a little bit from her and the crisis. 
Jesus has embarked on his public ministry, and from now on, what's going to have to be his guiding star is the will of the Father, not the will of his mother or anyone else. That's the first point in your outline. Jesus is about doing the Father's will, not yours or anyone else's. It's an important lesson for all of us to learn. Jesus still loves his mother. As I said, from the cross, he thinks about her, about her welfare. He entrusts his mother to John, his his beloved disciple. He's still tied to her, but he's now subordinate to the will of the Father. And we all need to learn this lesson. Our calling in life by no means compares to the calling of Jesus. But just as Jesus learned to submit to the Father's will, we too need to let learn to submit to the Father's will above all else. I'll use a personal example. When I was born, my mother was a follower of Jesus. When I was born, she prayed a prayer over me. She surrendered me to Jesus. Later in life, I read that prayer. When I was in my uh, early 20s, I discerned God's call in my life to go to Brazil as a missionary. She blessed me. She let me go, prayed for me. But she always wanted me nearby. That's the heart of a mother. And so when I would call home, almost every time the phone call would end with this, when are you coming home, Raymond? Only my mother can call me Raymond. But, you know, that desire to have me come home. And then, of course, when Judy and I had daughters, well, then the pull became even stronger. When are you going to bring the granddaughters home? It's the heart of a mother. We all need to learn to make this decision, to surrender to the will of the Father, no matter what it costs. And so, children, if you're sensing God's call on your life, honor your parents, but remember that above all, you must do the Father's will. That's where life is. The Father's will is perfect and acceptable for you. If you're a parent, bless your children to do the Father's will. Bless your children to do the Father's will. And God provides the grace for us, no matter what that entails. Jesus says to his mother, my hour hasn't come. Why does he say that? In the Gospel of John, hour refers to the time of the cross, the time of Jesus' atoning death for the salvation of all. This theme, it develops throughout the Gospel of John. Jesus keeps saying, my hour has not yet come until chapter 12. And some Greeks show up, and Jesus for the first time says this, John 12, verse 24. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus understands timing. Mary is thinking about the shame that may come over that family that has run out of wine. Jesus is thinking about something much deeper, something much more profound, the timing of the Father in his life, the time for him to reveal himself. So Jesus understands timing. Again, that's something we have to learn as followers of Jesus. Last weekend, we celebrated Fall Festival, a wonderful two-day celebration. We prayed hard for sunshine, and it rained both days. And so you might ask the question, God, why? 
Well, we believe in God's sovereignty over all things, including the weather. Uh, One of the things that happened that you may not have noticed is that in God's providence, we received tents larger than what we had ordered. We had ordered small tents. We got big tents. And people were able to gather under those tents, to have conversation, eat. People ate a lot of hot dogs, 4,500 hot dogs to be exact. So maybe had the sun shone, we would have run out of hot dogs. I don't know. Despite the rain, God was at work. Jesus accepted the Father's timing. And as disciples of Jesus, we have to accept his timing. Sometimes we're yearning for something. It may be job-related. It may have to do with your education. You may be thinking about marriage or about family. We have to learn to accept the Father's timing. Jesus did. In verse 5, Mary says to the servants, Jesus has just said, hey, what does this have to do with me? She persists. Do whatever he tells you. (laughs) She demonstrates faith in Jesus. And her faith is honored. It's interesting how Jesus works. He works discreetly here. So he doesn't steal the spotlight from the wedding couple. But in the background, he performs a miracle for the disciples, his mother and the servants. They see what he does. Side note here. Some would use this text here to to argue that Mary is the one that we should go to should we want something from Jesus. That Mary is the mediator between us and God. So if you really want something, talk to Mary and she will get Jesus to do it. This is the only passage where Mary serves in this role, where she goes to Jesus with a request. And if you read through the Gospels, there are lots of people that go to Jesus with requests, and he responds positively. For example, in chapter 4, there's an official, a Roman centurion, that goes to Jesus. His daughter is very, very ill, and Jesus heals her from a distance. There's only one mediator between us and God. His name is Jesus. And the scriptures are really clear about this. 1 Timothy 2, verse 3. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. One mediator. And now we're going to get to the heart of the message. Did you notice that Jesus used six stone water jars? Why? Those stone water jars, they were there for Jewish rites of of purification, for hand cleansing, for the washing of utensils. They held about 20 to 30 gallons, so about 80 to 120 liters of water. Jesus transforms the water into wine without an action. It's, It's an act of God, an act of creation. Why does he choose to use those stone water jars that are separated for the Jewish rites of purification? Why not just use the wine jars? Why not use the wine jugs? Why not use the empties, the wine skins, whatever they were using? 
Why does he choose to use the six water jars separated for religious purposes? You see, one of the traditions of the religious leaders of that day was that you could wash your water, sorry, wash your water, wash your hands in this water separated for, for purification, wash your hands, wash the utensils, and in that way kind of separate yourself from the sin of the world. What Jesus is saying is that water for ritual cleansing does not purify a person. More profoundly, the religious system of their day does not bring new life. Jesus, he wants to take the disciples from holy water to new wine, from legalism to life, from religion to relationship. And you might ask, but what's wrong with religion? Well, religion is just our human attempt to get what we want out of God or the spiritual realm. We use prayers. We use religious rites. We use religious practices, religious institutions to kind of try to manipulate the spiritual realm. And Jesus is about what God wants. He's about new life, not religion. There's a book written by Gelman and Hartman. It's a It's a children's book. It's entitled, How Do You Spell God? And they talk about the religious world as as if it were a mountain. And so, as everyone knows, there are many different paths up the mountain. Uh, Depending on which religion that you're a part of, you're on a different path. But at the end of the day, all of these religious paths all lead us to the same reality, the same God. It doesn't matter which path you follow. Well, There are a few problems with this thesis. Number one, it's nonsensical. All religions do not say the same thing. Some religions will tell us that God doesn't exist. Others will tell us that he can't be known. Others will say that life is just about being absorbed into a universal energy. So to say that all religions lead us in the same direction is nonsensical because they actually talk about completely different directions. And then secondly, God doesn't submit himself to our religious ideas. The scriptures teach us that Jesus comes down to humankind, tears down the mountain of religion, throws it into the sea, and replaces it with himself. Jesus is about new life, not religion. This becomes abundantly clear as we walk through the Gospel of John. Jesus has come to replace the old order of Jewish law and custom with something completely new. Karl Barth said, the, abol- uh, sorry, the, the revelation of God is the abolition of religion. In other words, when God revealed himself in Jesus, he was tearing down religion. Jesus did not come to give us a better religion. Did you notice how much wine he made? Six water jars, each one holding about 100 liters. So that's about 600 liters of wine. That is a lot of wine, a lot of quality wine, more than enough for the remainder of the feast. So what's the abundance of wine symbolic of? John chapter 1, we read that out of his fullness, out of the fullness of Jesus, we've received grace upon grace. John chapter 3 talks about Jesus 
you know, bringing the Holy Spirit, us being reborn by the Spirit, and Jesus gives the Spirit without measure. John chapter 10, Jesus says, I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly. So Jesus is about abundance, about abundant life. And when John tells the story about the wedding, he knows that he's talking about a lot more than water being turned into wine. He realizes that it points to the new age, the new age that Jesus has brought, the age of the Messiah. The prophets often talk about the age of the Messiah as a time of feasting, a time of abundant wine. Here's an example. Isaiah 25, verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We've waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation." So what's the message for the disciples on that wedding day? Rejoice. (laughs) Celebrate. The time of abundance has come. The new age has come. The master of the feast, and obviously this was a family of means because they had a master of the feast, not just one servant, but multiple servants. Imagine the shame for them should they have run out of wine. The master of the feast, he receives the wine And uh, he's actually the one that's kind of responsible for wine supply during the feast. He's probably a wine connoisseur. He's probably tasted a lot of wines. Uh, So he's tasting the wine, you know. He's tasting the amazing balance of sweetness and acidity. He's noticing the complexity of the wine. The taste lingers on his tongue. I have no idea what I'm talking about, actually. (laughs) I would just be able to tell you whether the wine was red or white. But the master of the feast, he knew what he was tasting. And he's just stunned by the wine's quality. He addresses the bridegroom, hey, usually it's when the senses are dulled, when people have drunk freely, that you bring out the poor wines. And here, well into the feast, you bring out the best of wines. What's the sign for the disciples? What's the message? Well, remember, in chapter 1, Nathaniel, he trusts Jesus because You know, he's kind of skeptical, but Jesus looks at him and he says, you are an Israelite indeed, a man in whom there's no deceit, no no guile. And he goes from skeptic to believer in that moment. Jesus turns to him and the other disciples and says, you will see much greater things than these. You'll see a vision of God. You will see God revealed. So here, at a wedding in Cana, Jesus manifests his glory in a discreet, small way. Nothing compared to his resurrection, nothing compared to what the disciples will see in the coming years, but it's enough. It's enough to move the disciples forward, to confirm the decision that they've made to follow the Messiah. And if we're following Jesus, Jesus will confirm our decisions to follow. That's what Jesus does. 
As we follow him, Jesus, he continues to reveal himself. We discover new things along the pathway. Our faith in him is confirmed over and over again. He speaks to us through his word. He speaks to us in prayer. He speaks to us as we sing songs, as we worship. He speaks to us through other people. He speaks to us in a multiple, a multitude of ways. Um, yesterday, one of our worship interns, she told the story of uh, what she was experiencing earlier in the summer. One of her dear friends uh, passed away. And so she was struggling with that. She was distraught. She was crying out to God. One day she was coming to the church, and as she was crying out to God, this song came to her mind, the, the lyrics of the song. And as those words began to go through her mind, the song came on the radio. For her, it was just a confirmation that God was hearing her cry. As you follow Jesus, Jesus will find ways to confirm his calling on your life. He knows how to speak to you. Our relationship with him is alive. It's dynamic. James Turner has written a book on American religion. It's called Without God, Without Creed, The Origins of Unbelief in America. And one of the things that he argues is that the very reason that people are leaving the church is because we have made, we have reduced (laughs) what was to be alive, we have reduced it to religious practice. We have reduced what should be alive, an encounter with the living God, to religion. And people don't need religion. Following Jesus is about connecting with the living God. When his hour comes in the Father's timing, Jesus goes to the cross. He sheds his blood for the salvation of humankind. He takes our sin upon himself so that we might be truly cleansed, not a hand-washing, but us cleansed by the shed blood of Jesus, having our sins forgiven, our guilt removed, not through a ritual, not through a religious rite, not through a religious institution, but through the sacrifice of the Messiah, God himself, the love of God revealed. And Jesus not only dies, he rises from the dead and sends his Holy Spirit to live in us that we might follow him. New life. You know, we've been focused on leading people to faith in Jesus here at Willingdon this year. And it's not the first time in our history, but we've been trying to do our best in this season. And obviously, we always depend on the grace of God to see someone come to faith in Jesus. But as we've been tracking that, we've seen that now almost 200 people have come to faith in Jesus. We have the names. And as you walk with the stories, you're just so encouraged because people who, you know, we come to Jesus out of brokenness. And so marriages that were coming apart or families that were broken, people addicted to drugs under the influence of alcoholism, people coming to faith in Jesus and suddenly finding new freedom, new life. People that were hungry for drugs now hungry for the word of God, reading the scriptures every day because they found life. Jesus is about new life, not religion. It's about new life. 2 Corinthians 5.17, the verse I quoted earlier. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come.
We celebrate weddings. You know, every wedding points to something greater, points to something beyond us. It's always a celebration of something greater. The scriptures speak of a day when Jesus will come for his bride. And people from all nations, from all languages, from all ethnic groups that follow him will be welcomed to this wedding feast. And at that feast, Jesus will lift the cup. And the feast will not be just for seven days, but for eternity. I can't wait to get there. Won't that be a great day? Amen. May we all be there. Amen. Let's stand for prayer. Maybe you're here today and you've never had the opportunity to actually surrender your life to Jesus. You've been on a journey and today is the day. The scriptures tell us that today is always the day if you don't know Jesus. And so Jesus invites you to know him, to receive forgiveness of sin, to receive new life, to embark on a journey with him. And so if that's your desire, I I invite you to pray with me. The prayer will be on the screen. Jesus, thank you for the invitation to know you. Please forgive me for leading my own life separate from you. Thank you for dying on the cross and and paying the price for all my sin. I repent and surrender my whole life to you. I turn to you for forgiveness and new life. Jesus, lead me from this day forward. Fill me with your spirit. Set me free. Make me into the kind of person you created me to be. I want to be like you. Father, thank you for adopting me into your family and gifting me with eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer for the first time today, I would just invite you to go back to the I Said Yes banner. Uh, We'd love to uh, provide some resources for you and and walk with you. And uh, before we do that, before we go out, I just want to pray a prayer for all of us. Father, we're here as uh, your children. Jesus, we're your disciples. And there are days when we really struggle because we don't understand what's happening in our lives. Thank you that you're present by your spirit to counsel us. Thank you that your timing is perfect. Thank you that your will, the Father's will, is good, acceptable, and perfect. May we just accept that, Lord, and live under the peace of your Holy Spirit as you lead us forward. Thank you for the new life that we have in you. Thank you that our future is in your hands. Thank you that the day is coming when we will be with you forever. Thank you that as we follow you here on earth, you confirm the decisions that we've made to follow you. Thank you that you're with us every day by your grace. It's all by your grace, Jesus. And so now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Uh, Pick up your discipleship brochure. Have a great weekend.